Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we often don't have enough time to get around to all the comments and questions that get sent in, so I don't want to wait, make you guys wait too long to get them answered, so we gather them up and we address them here on companion videos. And by the way, if you want to send in a question to be read on the show, simply use the tip link that's down in the description of this video, or you can enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your question answered on this show or one of the regular John Campia shows, if, of course, we consider it appropriate to use on our show. And, of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time. And all of us at the John Campia Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. And hey guys, listen, before we get to the questions, I, I want to let you know, I'm going to make a little bit of announcement. I'm going to announce it tomorrow on the John Campus show as well, but I thought, hey, you guys are the hardcore ones who watch the companion videos, so I thought I'd let you guys know first, is that we've done some staffing arrangements here. So first of all, you guys know Ray Aura. Of course, he's been doing graphics with me for a long time, like all the way back to the AMC days, but he's been with the John Campus show halftime doing graphics and everything like that ever since I started doing the John Campus show, which has been great. And you guys know Kimberly Curran, who is, you know, every once in a while pops in here to do some co-hosting. Well, uh, I'm really happy to announce that both of these guys are coming onto the show full-time now. Uh, Ray, uh, who's right above me here as our director of production, and Kimberly Curran is coming on to uh, be with the show full-time as our associate producer. She's going to be doing a lot of our writing and producing of certain segments of the show, and of course she's going to be on the show as well. And so I am more than thrilled to have both of them here with me. And a little bit of a change in format for the John Campus show as well in that from now on, we're not going to be bringing in remote guests anymore. Uh, we just, I've had too many hiccups and problems with trying to bring in guests remote. And I find, you know, Robert Meyer Burnett and I were talking on the phone earlier today and we were talking about like, it's just, I mean, talking over the internet is okay. But when we look back to shows we used to do when we were together physically in person, there's just better chemistry. Like we can play off each other a little bit easier. It's just better when we're in the same room. So What's going to happen is Rob will still appear on the show, just not as regularly as before because he's going to have to drive out here, but Rob will still be on the show every week. But uh, Ray's going to be in studio. Kimberly's going to be in studio. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to what lies ahead. So you guys are the first ones to know about it. So uh, there you go. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that stuff. We're here to answer your questions. So let's not waste any more time and get right to it. We're going to start getting caught up here with one from Adam Devine, who writes... <clears throat> If the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield Spider-Men show up in No Way Home, I believe that they will help the Tom Holland Spider-Man understand the reason to keep his identity secret because that has hurt both of them in their universes. Well, maybe yes and maybe no. I mean, he really hasn't let too many more people know about his identity than either one of those have. And he certainly has been bitten the ass by that. But I'm sure that's going to be one of the topics of conversation that gets brought up, Adam. All right, next up, Sergeant Ward writes, I think we're, I think Rogue Squadron being pulled from the schedule is less from Lucasfilm and more from Patty's commitment to Wonder Woman 3. She might need time to think about which one she wants to make. After all, she started the Wonder Woman franchise. She might want to end it. See, I would, I would agree with that, except for the fact that she knew she was doing Wonder Woman 3 when she signed on to do Rogue Squadron. She knew what her schedule was. She knew when things were happening. So did Lucasfilm. And you know what your schedule is before you make those sorts of decisions. I mean, that that's, that's the thing here. I don't believe that these people who also have assistants to keep track of their schedules and managers and agents and lawyers and all that kind of stuff, you know what your schedule is when you sign up for this other project. You seriously take into consideration your scheduling current commitments and if this new project can fit into them. And they all went, yeah, this fits perfectly fine. Yay. I. That's why I don't buy it. I don't buy scheduling conflicts from Lucasfilm. I don't buy scheduling conflicts from Patty Jenkins. I mean, listen, that might be the truth. It might be the truth. But I honestly believe when you look at the track record, I believe this is, to put kindly, creative differences. That's what I see here. And maybe I'm wrong. 
Maybe I'm wrong, and I hope someday I find out that I was. But that's what this reeks of to me, Sergeant. Uh, here's hoping you're right. All right, next up. Luke1234 writes, Let's say your Professor X theory for Spider-Man No Way Home is 100% correct. Over under 60%, Hugh Jackman shows up alongside him as Wolverine, but dressed in battle armor or regular clothes so Jackman doesn't have to go through those insane workouts. Okay, so if my crazy fan theory of Patrick Stewart showing up in Spider-Man No Way Home or Doctor Strange 2 in the Multiverse of Madness... Uh, one of our viewers proposed that could be an alternative. I said, that's actually a really good idea. So either one of those, I take way under 60% that Hugh Jackman shows up. I don't think Hugh Jackman has any tension of coming back as Wolverine. I think the only time, and this is just me guessing, but I think the only time we see Hugh Jackman possibly come back as Wolverine, if it's to do something funny, cameoing, or having a small part in a Deadpool movie. That's it. I don't see him doing anything else. But for Ryan Reynolds and Deadpool, I think maybe it could happen. So it's not impossible, but I will take well under, well under 60% on that, Luke. All right, next up, Dangerous D writes, Hey, John, Megan Gale, Australian supermodel, was supposed to star as Wonder Woman in uh, Miller's, George Miller's uh, Justice League in 2008. She was interviewed on why the film wasn't made for two reasons, uh, writer Strike and Christopher Nolan. Why didn't Warner Brothers greenlit this and worried about Nolan's Batman? Uh, by the way, that was also when Army Hammer was going to be Batman in that movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's not... We've talked a lot about the George Miller um, Justice League a lot, and one of the big problems was Warner Brothers didn't want to piss off Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan was not very happy at the idea of Warner Brothers rolling another Batman while he was doing Batman films. Understandably. I got it. So that makes total sense to me. Because uh, there was no such thing as multiverse stuff being done in the movies and stuff like that. And Christopher Nolan's like, uh, if there's going to be attention on Batman, I want it to be on the Batman films that I'm doing. You don't come in here and start making multiple other films with this character when I'm pouring my blood, sweat, and tears into this. So I think that was, and he's already at that time was pulling that kind of clout, so it made sense to me. But I always wondered, what would that George Miller's Justice League have been like with Army Hammer as Batman? Anyway, Javier Serrano writes, Greetings from Mexico, John. Well, greetings, Javier. Uh, the main cast for the live-action adaptation of the best-selling manga of all time, One Piece, has been revealed. Uh, this be an epic pirate fantasy series if done right. What are your thoughts? Thanks and keep up the great work. I have zero knowledge of One Piece. Know nothing about it. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the fact that I saw a number of headlines saying, you know, best-selling manga of all time, I never even would have heard of it at all. So I have no opinion on this, to be honest. Now, that's not me disparaging it. It might be fantastic. I'm just saying I don't know. Because I I know absolutely nothing about it. For all I know, One Piece is the story of the world's first creator of the jock. The jock protector. When maybe an era before him, men's balls were protected by a series of interwoven toothpicks. Until one man with vision said, what if the balls were protected with one piece? One plastic cup to protect the boys. That's the, Am I right? Is that, I mean, that's honestly that, but I'm just saying I have no idea what it's about. So unfortunately I haven't, but I should probably get myself acclimated with it. If it is the most best-selling one of all time and they are now getting some movement on this project, I should probably acclimate myself. Thanks for sharing that, Javier. All right, next up, One Piece. Scott Brown writes, my nephew outright hates the Affleck Batman because he kills. Well, I got bad news for your nephew. Every single movie Batman is killed. The Michael Keaton Batman killed. The uh, Christian Bale Batman killed. Ben Affleck Batman killed. They, they've all killed. They've all killed. Anyway, uh, I do agree with him that not killing and the struggle with that is a vigilante as a vigilante is more interesting, but I won't dismiss an interpretation of him that does. I'm open-minded your thoughts. Well, you know, this is a debate that comes up a lot, Scott. The reality is this. Batman has killed in the comics. As a matter of fact, I brought up and brought the strip on the show once where the Jason Todd Robin and Batman are having a debate about whether they should take out a certain criminal and like Batman is saying, like, no, we don't go out to kill these guys. And Jason Todd says to him, well, you've killed. And Batman says, yes, but only in self-defense. 
So, I mean, so he's killed. Now, the different iterations in more modern times, they've created this really weird thing where Batman will absolutely not kill. But here's the, here's the strange thing about it. This is the really strange part about that. They say Batman has this code not to kill, but he constantly does things to criminals that could easily kill them. Like, I talk about this one, but I, I can't remember the specific story. But I remember this one strip that I brought up this one time. It's like Batman's, you know, uh, going after this hideout house. It's kind of an old abandoned house where these criminals are hanging out. And he like, he drops from the rooftops with his knees planted right in the bad guy's chest. And they go right through the floor down to the next floor below. And Batman lands full force with both of his knees on uh, knees on the guy's ribs. And you hear this thought bubble in Batman four broken ribs a ruptured spleen. He'll be in hospital in traction for six months. Like, no, that would have killed him. Yeah, yeah, that would be done. So what they, so here's what the Batman writers do. They allow themselves to do all the violence that Batman wants to do, but just pretend and write that, oh, but that, that it doesn't kill the bad guys. So it's because he has this rule that he doesn't kill, where if he was actually doing any of that stuff, it would actually kill the character. So anyway, it's, it's kind of weird. You can't, I mean, every time you punch a guy in the face, you could kill him. And so Batman does a lot of stuff that would, even in today's comics, that would leave a pretty big body trail behind him. But anyway, to me, every single Batman has killed. You know, I think it's Mr. Sunday Movies. I could be mistaken about this. But I think Mr. Sunday Movies made a great video once called the Batman Body Count where literally it's this video that runs down with this huge running total of all the kills that Batman has had in all the various Batman movies. You should go look it up and show it to your nephew. It could be kind of fun. All right, next up, Ash M. writes, Hey, John, I really liked Eternals, me too, and loved Macari, me too. Uh, my husband pointed out that her name sounds like Mercury, also known as Quicksilver, also the Roman god known for his speed. I thought that was a cool connection, and I also love Macari and Druig. You know, that is a connection. Obviously, you had Thena, you have Icarus, and all these sorts of things that would be connected to human mythology and stuff like that. But I have to agree with you, Ash. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite aspects of Eternals is Macari and Druig, who maybe with the exception of Tony and Pepper are my favorite comic book movie couple. They just had so much freaking charm between them. I just thought it was awesome. All right, next up, B. Wayne, New York writes, John, so I saw Eternals. I liked it, but it was too different for me. Uh, it's a one and done, unlike Shang-Chi, which I loved and saw it four times. I'm thinking multiple viewings are not in the cards for Eternals. Be careful with self-driving mode on Tesla. You know people have died. Well, let's let's take those two different things. One, listen, I'm not surprised to hear that, B-Wayne, because like I said coming out of it, I said, look, this is a very, very different kind of movie, and I don't know how a lot of, you know, MCU fans are going to respond to this. Some have responded very well and, and others like yourself, not so well. So I get it. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. As far as the self-driving and, and uh, autopilot on Tesla, because I just bought my wife a Tesla and I'm telling you what this, I mean, I love my Toyota CHR. I drive a Toyota CHR. I love it. But we, we decided that the next car we buy was going to be an electric, and Ann's car was getting kind of old. It was a 2009. It was up over 200,000 miles now. You could start to feel it in the car that it didn't want to live anymore. So we I bought her a Tesla, and it's a ball. I got to tell you, it's all the hype about Teslas are real. I mean, it's, it's an absolute ball. One of the cool things is autopilot. But I read this study. Have there been accidents with autopilot? Absolutely. But I read this study that it's <clears throat> for regular car driving, according to the National Traffic, Highway and Traffic, whatever the, the name of the body of that governing body is, there is one accident for every like 450,000 man miles driven. So like for every 450,000 man miles driven, there's an accident in the U.S., under autopilot, there's one accident for every 4.9 million miles driven. That's almost 10 times less accidents. You have 10 times less of a chance of getting into an accident if you're under autopilot, according to those statistics. 
And so, yes, have there been accidents with autopilot? Yes. But 10 times less on the ratio. Not just 10 times left, not just 10 times less, 10 times less on the ratio. And we've put autopilot on that thing, and it's remarkable. It's really, really cool. So anyway, uh, just something to, to keep in mind there. All right, next up. Uh, let's see, Thor, but not complaining. I love that username, right? It's one of two. Well, John, I'm calling it now. After the first No Way Home trailer came out, I saw a post of the scene when Peter screws up the spell that said, wait, just tell everyone you're Spider-Man again. Tension lost. I thought it was hilarious, but I soon thought, what if Peter can't? What if telling them would cause further problems in the already crazy multiverse and his only choice is to begin anew in the Sony-verse? It's just a theory, but at least I wouldn't lose the tension and provide a reason for him to go. See, here's what I think, though. Here's what I think, Thor. I think if the theory that he is going over to the Spider-Verse is correct, and that's a big if, but if it is correct that he's going over to the Sony Spider-Verse, I don't think he's going alone. I think Ned goes too. I think MJ goes too. Maybe even Aunt May goes too. Although, you know, there are rumors going around that Aunt May dies in this movie. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But those are the rumors going around. But I think Aunt May, I think MJ, I think Ned all go with him. I, I think they're all connected to the character. I think they bring him over too. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But otherwise, Thor will keep our eyes open for your theory there as well. All right. Ed the Fed writes... I recently watched your review on The Harder They Fall, and it was not very positive. No, it was terrible. I thought it was the worst movie of the year, to be honest, other than Thunder Force. Uh, everyone seems to love it. It's, it's Rotten Tomatoes score was positive. I was wondering, have you given a movie a second viewing and maybe changed your opinion on it? No, I have no reason to watch it again. Listen, films are subjective. Listen, the, the reviews for The Harder They Fall aren't just good. They're very good. Both the audience score and the critic scores on it are very good, but I don't care. All are like everybody has films that they hate that a lot of people love. Everybody has films they love that a lot of people hate. The harder they fall is one of those for me. I think it is an absolutely insufferable piece of garbage. I think it's a terrible, terrible movie. Certainly better than I could ever do, but I'm not the measure of excellence, am I? Um, it is a horrible, horrible steaming pile of garbage. Just awful filmmaking. And it's, I'm really disappointed with that because it's got one of my favorite casts we've seen in a long time. I mean, you got Idris Elba, you got Zazie Beetz, um, you got Lakeith Stanfeld. You got, I mean, just, it's loaded. The movie's loaded. Delroy Lindo is in it, but I just thought it was just abysmal. I don't have to go and watch it again. I don't revise my opinions. You know, that has happened out of the thousands of films I've watched. It's maybe happened three times in my entire career. So just because other people like it does not change my opinion. My opinion is my opinion, even when it's the unpopular opinion. So, uh, yeah, I think it's the worst movie of the year, but that's just me. All right, next up. Jack Lumbers writes, just saw The French Dispatch. Still got to see. It's the one that I still need to see. Great movie and funny, but very strange movie. Came out of the movie with a sense of, what did I just watch? You know, it's funny. I've got a buddy of mine who's a real big Paul... Thomas Anderson fan. And he kind of said the same thing, only he didn't like it as much. He was just like, ah, I don't know. This one didn't work for me nearly as well. Sat kind of weird. So, and I got to see it for myself to know for sure, but it's kind of funny hearing these types of reviews coming up. Thanks for that, Jack. Uh, Jack Lumbers also writes one of two regarding the curse child. Uh, it started out. Oh, that's the Harry Potter thing. The cursed child. It started as a play written Jack Thorne, not J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I heard about I because I said on the show that I thought it started as a J.K. Rowling book and then became a play. But apparently it started as a play and then got made into a book. Anyway, the script for the play is then turned into a book. From what I heard from people, I have heard from online who've seen the play. They love the play with all of its theatric. With all its theatric. Uh, I agree with you, though, regarding the adaptation. From what I have seen, the book is divisive. As someone whom only read the book, I felt like the story is a bad time travel story with all the trappings I hate. I would prefer a different original adaptation. Yeah, again, and like I said, Jack, I am not a Potterhead. I mean, I, I appreciate the Harry Potter movies. I like the Harry Potter movies, but I'm not what you would call a Potterhead. But I have heard from people, including my own wife, who is a big, big major Potterhead. Mm. Like, she dresses up. Whenever, when we would, would go to the last couple of Harry Potter movies, she would dress up 
as whatever house it is she belongs to. I don't know. I know there's, what are the houses? I know there's Gryffindor. I know there's Slytherin. I know there's Hufflepuff. And I can't remember the last one. There's one more, right? Or was there two more? I think there's one more. But I, okay, so I know Gryffindor. For, I, quite frankly, I'm impressed with myself that I knew three. Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, Blah, 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 blah. some other one. I don't know. But she would always dress up as her house and go to the things. And yeah, she didn't like it either. She didn't like it either. But yes, you are right. It was started as a play for send that. So I had gotten that wrong. Thanks for the update on that, Jack. Appreciate that, man. All right. Next up, Nosferatu writes, there's a reason Daniel Craig has graying hair in the new James Bond because he has no time to die. D-Y-E. All right, Nosferatu, I'll give you the, the drum hit for that. Okay, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you that one. He has no time. Okay, that's kind of funny. All right, Logan Ki- Logan James Kyniston writes, one of two. Over the past two weeks, I've been to see The Last Duel, Dune, Last Night in Soho, and Eternals. Also, seeing Spencer on Friday. Still haven't seen Spencer. I'm actually dying to see that. At my Cineworld, The Last Duel was only on for one week with only two screenings a day. I know how badly it bombed at the box office. Luckily, I managed to catch it on its second to last day of screening. The other films, however, all have a number of weeks of showing with at least five to ten different show times. Why do you think that is? What makes The Last Duel different? Thanks, John. I mean, I don't know. That's up to the theaters. Look, when when a studio has a movie coming out, they make deals with theaters and they, they cut certain deals and they come to an agreement about you know, how many screens it'll get, the type of cut that the theaters take. And the, the theaters got to be very careful because the theaters make their living not on how many people come to the movie, but on how many people come to the movie because they buy concessions. And if you've got a movie theater that's empty because it's playing a movie nobody wants to see, you're not selling popcorn. And that's how the theaters make their money. That's how they keep the lights on. That's how they pay the staff. And so... I know The Last Duel, like, bombed harshly. Like, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was in, like, the four-something million dollar range, which is just terrible. And I like this film. It It deserved much better than that. It deserved much better than that. And it didn't get it. So I don't know if that's just the arrangement, the studios, because they weren't willing to do much. I don't know if the theaters didn't believe they were going to pull audiences. I don't know if they had launched and saw that nobody was seeing it. So they took over other theaters and other screening times it was going to have with other movies. It depends on a theater to theater basis. I know on the theater I saw it in at the AMC 16 in Riverside, I know that it was playing on, I think two screens and had three or four screens a day. So it also depends from theater to theater. So you'll have to ask the management at your particular theater there, Logan, but those are some of the dynamics that go into it. And I hope, hope that's helpful. But yeah, it's a shame that, oh gosh, that movie bombed so hard. All right, Logan James Kynaston also writes, three years ago, I asked you what your favorite episode of The Office is. You gave a strong and passionate reason for why Pam's art show. You know what's funny? Somebody just asked me again the other day about favorite Office episodes. And I kind of froze. And I said, well, obviously there's Dinner Party. And I mentioned a couple of others as well. But I just totally froze. Yes, Pam's art show is my favorite episode. That, that's my favorite episode. Absolutely. Thank you for reminding me that. Is your favorite. Now I ask, uh, what about your favorite Parks and Recreation episode? And do you feel as passionate about that? I love Parks and Rec. I, I can literally pop on that show three or four days a week and, and play show bingo or roulette. By, by roulette, I mean I just pop on the show on the streaming on the streamer and then kind of close my eyes and just randomly flick up or down and then hit play. And whatever episode it lands on, I know it's going to be great. I know it's going to be great. So what are some of my favorites? Okay, uh, the Pawnee Harvest Festival one is one of my favorites. Uh, Andy and April's Wedding. Please bring 20 cooked steaks or something like that. Uh, Andy Andy and April's wedding is one of the best ones. Um, one where they were, um, uh, Anne realizes that Chris had broken up with her, but she just didn't know it for a few weeks when she just didn't realize he had broken up with her and they tried to go to Ron's steakhouse. The one where 
they all have, what was it? Was it a, a bachelor party that all the guys, all the male characters are together and they got to do one thing that night. And for Chris, they went to, or for Andy, they went to um, uh, the football stadium where the, uh, where the Colts play. And I think Jim Ursay was there. And I think Andrew Luck was in it as well. And they're throwing the balls around. They got to do eat with each one. That's another great one. So I don't know if I have one that stands out to me as much as Pam's art show one does on the office, but there's a lot of really good ones in Parks and Rec. A lot of really good ones in Parks and Rec. Uh, thanks for bringing that up again, Logan. I like thinking about that stuff. All right, next up. Uh, Christian Corbera writes, uh, Hey, John, love your show. Thank you so much. Been watching since 2014. Well, thank you so much, dude. I appreciate that. Uh, where are we at? Just wanted to share some exciting news that my short film, uh, Cucumber, is showing with seven other shorts at the West Side Theater in Hamilton, Ontario, my hometown, The Hammer, uh, this weekend. Thanks for all your content. Dude, that is super exciting. That is amazing. First of all, it's amazing when you create something like that, but then it's extra amazing when it gets to play in like a program like that and you're playing alongside other people's art as well that is so exciting christian congratulations on that and uh what high school did you go to you didn't happen to go to, did you go to st thomas more boo did you go to barton did you is barton even there did you go to st jean de brebeuf that was my high school i went to st jean de brebeuf high school in hamilton ontario canada before that i went to st daniel's high school i was in the catholic school system in Hamilton, we had like two school systems. You had the public school system. You had the Catholic school system. I was in the Catholic school system. Uh, go Burbuff Braves. All right, next up. And Anonymous here writes, buy one, rent one, lose one. Will Ferrell edition. Oh, here we go. Uh, get hard, semi-pro, Holmes and Watson. None of them are great. I would say this, though. I would buy semi-pro because while it's not great, it, it definitely had moments. There were definitely some good laugh-out-loud moments in uh, semi-pro. I would rent Get Hard only because it's not terribly offensive to the senses. <laughs> it's not terribly offensive to the senses. And then I would absolutely lose Holmes and Watson because that was terrible. All right, Anonymous Viewer also writes, Hi, amigos. Succession. Wow. I've never before seen a show with only despicable but also fascinating wicked characters, engaging plot, top-tier writing, production, acting, music. I binged like 20 episodes in three days. Hope you get to watch it, John. Cheers. Listen, I watched like the first couple of episodes. It's It's just one of those weird things. I think... Person of Interest was another show that was like this, where I watched a couple of episodes, really liked it, but just never got around to keep watching it. At some point, especially after I saw Brian Cox win the Emmy for Best Actor, I was like, okay, I know I definitely have to get back on this show. And I just never have. And I have no reason that I haven't, because I saw like the first one, I'm like, this is really good. But then I just never got around to it again. So at some point, I'm going to have to... Uh, Correct that, Anonymous. I'm going to have to correct that. Thanks for the recommendation. All right. <clears throat> JR69 writes, Since the pandemic killed all my local theaters, that sucks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. I have had to rely on home streaming. You got to do what you got to do. Missing the theatrical experience, John, but what can you do? Excited to see Shang-Chi and Jungle Cruise this Friday, thanks to Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I mean, look, I always talk about the theatrical, the theatrical experience. If you're a true cinephile, true film fan, you want to see these movies the way the filmmakers meant them to be seen on the big screen, blah, blah, blah. But not everybody has that choice, especially with the ramifications of the pandemic, right? And if you got to watch it on streaming, then you watch it on streaming, right? And so for all of you who haven't had the chance, legitimately just never got the chance to see Shang-Chi, whatever, awesome that Disney Plus Day is almost upon us. All right, thanks for sharing that, JR69. All right, next up, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, I was wondering if you saw the full trailer for Being the Ricardos. Yes, and we talked about it on the John Campy show earlier today. It looks great. Nicole looks like she put her all into being Lucille Ball. Javier Bardem looks great as well. Uh, I cannot wait for this movie. What do you think? Thanks for the show. Hey, listen, Ben, like I said, we already talked about it on the show earlier today, so you can go back and watch my comments there. But just to recap, it looks like an Oscar contender. I mean, and on top of Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman, you've got Academy Award winner J.K. Simmons in there. You've got Clark Gregg, uh, who I adore Clark Gregg. Uh, of course, he's Agent Coulson in the MCU. Um, so you've got this incredible cast, all the behind-the-scenes drama, the real-life stuff. It, it just looks like a best-picture contender. Now, it's just a trailer. The movie may completely suck for all we know, but 
The trailer was fantastic. I can't wait to watch it, Ben. All right, next up. Mum Ra, the ever-living, writes, Hey, John, did you get a chance to see the Rocky versus Drago trailer? I did. 40 extra minutes put back into the film. Such a great trailer, and the new music in the preview has me pumped to see it this Thursday in a theater. Hope to hear you and Rob talk about it soon. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know if I'm going to go see it. Because here's the thing. To me, the theatrical version of the film is the film. That's it. That's the film. Like, I love the Return of the King and and the Lord of the Rings extended edition stuff. I do. But when I think of the movies, when I think of Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers and Return of the King, I think of the original theatrical release. That, to me, is the definitive version of the movie. (laughs) But I'll tell you what that trailer did. That trailer made me want to watch Rocky IV again. I love Rocky IV. It's my favorite of the Rocky movies out of all of them. I love it. It's uh, it's fabulous. Oh, you love! Like, it's just, it's great. The Death of Apollo, it's an amazing movie. I love it so much. So I might get myself out to see it, but honestly, if, when I do and if I do, it's not going to be for the extra 40 minutes. It's just going to be to see Rocky Four on the big screen again. That That's why I might do it. So I'll let you know how that goes, man. Thanks for sharing, Mumra. Next up. We got Russell Amador who writes, Hey, John, with the Eternal somewhat now in the rearview mirror, there are still plenty of solid releases to come in November from Encanto, which I'm hearing fabulous things about, to Come On, Come On, to Gucci, House of Gucci, looks like a Oscar contender as well, and Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Will you be tuning into any? Also, uh, are you highly anticipating any? Well, I mean, absolutely Encanto. Because I just thought the trailers were fantastic and the early word on them is wonderful. So I'm very excited about that. And how Suguchi. I mean, look at that cast, man. Adam Driver, Al Pacino, Jared Leto. I mean, it goes on and on, directed by Ridley Scott. And I just saw Ridley Scott's other film, The Last Duel, which I thought was really good. I thought it was quite good. How Suguchi looks amazing, man. So I'd say right now that kind of tops my list until we get into, you know, Spider-Man. But How Suguchi's right up there. All right. Thanks, Russell. Next up, Agent J writes, Bonjour, Jean and crew. I like Wes Anderson's visual style and how he expressed it in The French Dispatch. Uh, It's both a love letter and a satire of all French cliches. Love the film, but I feel it's too niche, too French for a large audience. Any thoughts? Again, I, this is the one I haven't had a chance to see. You know, I finally got to see a couple of the ones that I've been behind on, but French Dispatch is still not one. Like I said, I've got another friend who like he's, he's a big fan of Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, right? And you would think that with those sensibilities, you'd really like the Wes Anderson stuff. And Wes Anderson has, he's a little more quirky. Like his stuff, when you look at, whether you're looking at Steve Zizou or the Royal Tannenbaums or, or, you know, uh, stuff like that. I actually find a lot of similarities between their films. Again, aside from that kind of quirkiness, that add like, honestly, I, I find Wes Anderson films and Paul Thomas Anderson films to be quite simple, similar except for the fact that Wes Anderson brings, again, that very X-factor kind of quirkiness to it. So when a buddy of mine who's a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan decided to go, like, went to go see it, and he likes, like, basically all the films from Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, whatever, it, and he came back to me, he's like, "Mm." so it kind of took some of the wind out of my sails because I know he appreciates those kinds of films. So I don't know, man. I'll, I'll have to just... I'm sure I'll still get around to see it. I will still get around to see it. But once I do, I'll I'll share my thoughts on that. Thanks for sharing yours, Agent J. All right, next up. uh, Dangerous D writes, You fight like a younger man, nothing held back, admirable but mistaken. Oh, you think darkness is your ally. You merely adopt the darkness. I was born to it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man, but by then nothing uh, to me but brighten. Do you mean, isn't that line blinding? That is the line from Bane, right? And isn't the last... I'm, maybe I'm... I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I thought the last time... Unless that's supposed to be a, a joke or something. Anyway, if it is dangerous, it's gone over my head. Sorry about that. All right. Anonymous viewer writes, uh, Hey, John. As a Succession fan... More on Succession. I think Brian Cox is an awesome actor. But his recent movies, I can only think of are The Ring, 
Uh, Troy. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was the, the king of kings in Troy. I forgot about that. Super Troopers, Autopsy of Jane Doe. I thought I really liked him in that. Not exactly Oscar films. Are there any good Brian Cox movies I uh, that I should go back and watch? One that really, well, I mean, the best one is he's not the star of it, but X-Men 2. X-Men 2 as Stryker, one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. One of the most important comic book movies ever made. Um, as Stryker, excellent, excellent, excellent. Another one I would recommend, again, he's not the main guy in it, but another one I would recommend was the one he did with John Malkovich and um, uh, Bruce Willis called Red R.E.D., which stands for Retired Extremely Dangerous. I think Helen Mirren was in that too. I think it was, yeah, I think it was Helen Mirren, Brian Cox, John Malkovich, uh, Bruce Willis. Um, those so, and I'm sure there's many others, but those are two that come off the top of my head that I really, really enjoyed. All right, next up, Ryan G writes, Hey, John, I'm thinking of watching a double feature on Friday, and both the movies star Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The movies are Jungle Cruise and Red Notice. What are your thoughts? Jungle Cruise is fun. I mean, I don't think it's great. But it's a fun little movie. I I enjoyed Jungle Cruise. Red Notice, I haven't watched yet. And I totally should uh, because it's two of my favorite movie stars. My absolute number one favorite movie star, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, One of my top favorite movie stars and has been for a long time, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So I really should get around to it. But I've heard such bad things about it that I've I've been hesitant to watch it because I love both these guys so much. I don't know if I want to watch it, if it's going to be bad. But... I'll probably have to get around to it. But yeah, Jungle Cruise is fun. I, I think you, you'll probably enjoy it. It's, it's a fun little movie. All right, next up, Stephen writes, Hey, John, saw Eternals and I loved it. Awesome. Icarus, easily my favorite. Chloe said she was inspired by Snyder's Man of Steel. Uh, another reason why Man of Steel is one of the most, if not the single most underappreciated comic book film of all time. And man, those action scenes were breathtaking. Snyder must be proud. Also, Icarus's mindset and determination kind of reminded me of General Zod. I mean, I mean, it's, it's true because both of them, I'm not going to go into spoiler detail here for that, but like, when you look at Zod, Zod was driven by a commitment to something, an ideal. He wanted to save his people. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what General Zod want. He wanted to save his people. And he wanted to save his civilization. But some of cinema's great villains are ones that have great motivations but are willing to do unreasonable things to achieve those noble goals. And and I think Icarus, to a degree, again, without going into any spoiler details, I think Icarus, to a degree, kind of reflects that one, too. Like, he, all he wants to do is, is fulfill the grand design of the universe. He wants to, to be faithful to, you know, um, uh, Arashem and, and, and those that created him. But it's interesting. All right, nice comparison there, man. Next up. Brian O'Connor writes, Hey, John and crew, I know you'll disagree with me, John, but if I'm Kathleen Kennedy, there's no way I'm allowing the person who is most responsible for Wonder Woman 84 to make any Star Wars film. It's not a loss, in my opinion, having Jenkins leave the project. Let me challenge, let me push back on you this a little bit, brother. Um, let me push back just a little bit, Brian. As, as a fellow film fan, let me give you a little bit of friendly pushback on this. One of the things that we movie fans are often really guilty of is, is being incredibly short-sighted. And I, I include myself in this. We, as film fans, are often very, very short-sighted in that all we are willing to look at is whatever the last project was. Because I agree, and I had, I had to say this to somebody else earlier today too, I concur that Wonder Woman 84 was a disappointment. I concur. But Steven Spielberg the greatest filmmaker of all time has had a bad day at the office. They've all had a bad day at the office. Patty Jenkins, yes, she may have done Wonder Woman 84, but prior to that, she did the first Wonder Woman, which was a big hit with the, with it was the trifecta, the critics, the audience, and the box office. It was a big hit with all of them. Wonderful film. Before that, a film first won an Academy Award. She directed Charlize Theron to the only Academy Award when she's had in her career in Monster. Brilliant freaking movie. Brilliant movie. Did she have a bad day at the office with Wonder Woman 84? I concede so. Yes. Yeah, she did. But 
I would challenge you and all of us to resist the temptation to be really short-sighted. It's like, oh, they did that one bad movie. Well, then we forget about all the incredible things they did. Um, and I think that's dangerous. Because, yeah, they made that one disappointing film, but they also made one not long before that that was really great, and then another one years before that that was freaking awesome and won Charlie Theron her only Academy Award. And the number one job of the director is to get the best performances possible out of their actors. So I would say, yeah, Wonder Woman 84, disappointment. Okay, this is still Patty Jenkins. And if you're a movie executive and you're not willing to roll the dice with Patty Jenkins, I got to question your sanity. I got to question your sanity. Now, look, the conversation changes if we watch Wonder Woman 3 and Cleopatra and both of them end up crapping the bed, which I don't anticipate they will, but let's say they do. Okay, well, then that changes the conversation about Patty Jenkins. But as of right now, to me, she's had one stumble. One stumble. It was the most recent one, but whatever. It was the one stumble. So I wouldn't be so quick to be so short-sighted. I mean, that's that's just how I see it. And again, I've been guilty of that. I've totally been guilty of that. Um, and I think we all have. But I would just say, think bigger picture. Think bigger picture. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Because that's like saying, well, you know, well, I'm not, no, I'm going to resist. I'm, I'm not going to say what I was about to say. All I'm going to say is, Let's look bigger picture from now. But thanks for sharing your thoughts on it, Brian. I really appreciate that, dude. All right, Film Lovin' Bro writes, I'm glad Chloe Zhao may do a Star Wars flick after all. I was wondering if the mixed responses to Eternals would send her back to doing just indies, but she clearly had a nerd on and understanding for genre material, which can only be a good thing for us fans. And of course, what Film Lovin' Brother is referring to is the fact that a story has been kind of making its way around, a story that has not been backed up by any of the major trades, by the way. Like, we haven't seen this in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter or anything, but still a number of places are reporting that Kevin Feige, who absolutely adores Chloe Zhao, um, is, of course, going to be doing a Star Wars film, but we haven't known who's directing it. A little while ago, or, or sometime, sometime ago, I should say, Chloe Zhao mentioned that she would love to do a Star Wars film, and now rumors are going around that she's going to be the one directing the Star Wars film for Kevin Feige. I buy it, and I'm all for it. If it happens, but again, it, you got to take it with a huge grain of salt on that. We'll see how that goes, film loving bro. All right, next up, Tron writes, Trank, Lord and Miller, Trevorrow, the Game of Thrones guys, and now Patty Jenkins. This is the reason why it's hard to get excited about Star Wars. How long have we waited for Obi-Wan and where's the Ryan Johnson trilogy? Feels like they still don't have a plan. Well, as far as the Ryan Johnson trilogy goes, I have been telling you guys for over a year. That ain't never happening. That ain't happening. But John, they said, I know what they said, but it's not happening. That's that's done. They're just not coming out and saying it's done yet. But I, I'm telling you, that's done. Ryan Johnson is not going to be making another Star Wars trilogy. If for no other reason, he wants nothing to do with it anymore. With the, uh, with the uh, abuse that he took at the hands of Star Wars fans. I mean, I'll never understand that. All the dude did was he made the best Star Wars movie he could. And even if you don't like the movie... That's all he was. He was a Star Wars fan who just wanted to make a movie that he wanted everybody to love. And if you didn't love it, that's fine. But the abuse he took at the hands of fans is, quite frankly, embarrassing. As a Star Wars fan, it's humiliating and embarrassing um, that our fandom acted like that. And frankly, there's no way in the world Ryan Johnson would ever want to be part of that again. Like, I even remember other filmmakers like Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie, who's doing great stuff with Tom Tom Cruise. He's doing like amazing stuff with Tom Cruise. But Christopher McQuarrie, seeing the way the fan base treated Ryan Johnson, he was like, he just came out of nowhere and just said, yeah, nope, I'm never going to do a Star Wars movie. No way. I don't want to be involved with that fandom. And you can't blame him. Like we, the, the Star Wars fandom for a while became a vicious, vicious, toxic place. And, uh, yeah, so that, so that's gone, but yes, I agree, man. My one big criticism, I, I think Kathleen Kennedy is going as a first ballot hall of famer in the Hollywood hall of fame. Steven Spielberg refers to as the best producer Hollywood's ever had. I, when you look at her resume, I dare you to find its equal, go find the, the equal to Kathleen Kennedy's resume. You're not going to find many. You're not going to find many. She's an incredible producer. 
But being the head of a studio carries different responsibilities than being a producer. One of the key responsibilities that I have contended for a long time is the main job, particularly if you're running Lucasfilm, is to make 100% sure that you are 1,000% on the same page as the filmmakers you're bringing onto your projects, that you are crystal clear about what your expectations are and that you are crystal clear about the project that these filmmakers want to make and you make sure you are 1,000% on the same page with each other before you sign them and make announcements to the world that these are being done. And back to your point, Josh Trank, Lord and Miller, Carl and Trevaro, D&D, the, the Game of Thrones guys. And now I guarantee you it's creative differences with Patty Jenkins. That has been, to me, the biggest Achilles heel with Kathleen Kennedy. That she has failed in what I believe is the primary responsibility of making sure before moving forward and signing on filmmakers that you and they are a thousand percent crystal clear on the same page as each other. Now, obviously, once in a while, you're still going to have... The, you, th this is a business of creative forces. There's going to be conflict sometimes. Maybe you thought you were on the same... That's going to happen from time to time. But the amount that it's happened with Kathleen Kennedy is crazy. It's crazy. She's also done some great stuff. Absolutely. Her, her movies under her watch have all made a billion dollars, except for one. One of her films is still the number one domestic box office film of all time. And that's Star Wars The Force Awakens. It ain't Avatar. It ain't Endgame. The number one domestic box office film of all time is Star Wars The Force Awakens, a movie I happen to love. But uh, that Mandalorian is, you know, that, that was, he orchestrated that, man. She took, out of all the hundreds of pitches for the shows, she recognized in John Favreau's pitch some real potential, and then she decided, according to John Favreau, to match John Favreau up with Dave Filoni and say, you guys work together on this. Like, John, you're executive producer. You're, you're the boss of this. You're the showrunner. But work with Dave Filoni, because I think you guys might be able to make some magic here together. And John Favreau talks about that. And that, perfect. She understood what the creator wanted to do, the creator, John Favreau, was crystal clear on what her expectations were. She then put on her producer hat a little bit and said, you know what would work really well? Let's have you work with Dave Filoni. I think that would be really good for, for Dave because he's going to learn a lot from you. And I think it'll be good for you because there's very few people that know Star Wars lore quite as well as Dave Filoni does. And I think if we put the two of you together, some magic could happen. And look what's happened. Mandalorian is ridiculously popular. People love it. And ain't nobody wants to give Kathleen Kennedy any credit for it, but they should. John Favreau does. And, but you also got to count her knocks. And, and I completely understand you, Tron. You're preaching to the choir, man. That has been her big, her, her number one biggest failure has been being on the same page with her filmmakers. And her number two biggest failure was when sitting down to orchestrate the new trilogy they didn't have a complete roadmap and plan before starting it. And that was another big, big mistake, which led to the rise of Skywalker. Anyway, uh, Garden Variety Vagabond writes, John, for Spider-Man, it has been confirmed that the 1977 The Amazing Spider-Man star, Nicholas, the 1978 Japanese Spider-Man, that would be totally awesome. I have no idea what you're saying, Garden. Let me try reading this again. It has been confirmed that the 1977 The Amazing Spider-Man star, Nicholas, the 1978 Japanese Spider-Man, that would be totally awesome. What has been confirmed? Are you saying that the star of the 1977 Spider-Man is going to be in the movie? I hadn't heard that. I had heard that he wanted to be in the movie, but that he wasn't asked. And the 1978 Japanese Spider-Man, which was like a totally different kind of Spider-Man, uh, I have not, has that actually been confirmed? I have not heard that. Or maybe you're saying something completely different, Garden Variety. I'm not really quite clear on that, but thanks for sharing it. All right. Sea Monkey writes, one of three. I just watched Dune. I love Dune. Absolutely loved it. My wife had no idea what Dune was about before the movie. And after the credits rolled, she exclaimed, what a great movie. I can't wait for part two. Because I never read the books, what made the movie so captivating was everything was fresh, fascinating. The languages, titles, creatures, spaceship designs, equipment, cultural stuff, basically the world building. 
Do you think not having read the books makes the Dune movie more fun? Or do you think it can work the opposite and reading the books makes the movie even better? Do you, uh, you do an amaze, an amazing job and make me want to do my own job better. Oh, thank you so much for that. Sea monkey. Appreciate that very much. Okay. Look, everybody's going to have a different answer for this, but let me tell you my personal perspective on it. All right. If there is a movie coming out based on a book that I haven't read yet, I have a rule for myself not to read that book before the movie comes out because I want to go into that movie fresh. I don't want my experience of the movie to be soiled by my own mental expectations coming out of the book. You know, well, in my head, I always saw this happening this way. Well, I I don't want that. I just want to go into the movie and let that be my freshest first experience. Because whatever your first experience is, is always the thing you're going to make the measure, right? If you watch, I mean, so many people, you talk to a person who liked a movie better than the book, odds are they saw the movie first. You talk to somebody who says they like a book better than the movie, odds are they probably read the book before they saw the movie. I, I just think if you're a primarily a film fan, I say you go in cold with that because Anne also knew nothing about Dune. Like my wife, Ann, knew nothing about Dune. And when those credits rolled, she was glowing. She actually said the possibly divorce-inducing words, that was better than Star Wars. We've had to go to couples therapy. Over, that. We're working through it. I'm thinking maybe we can salvage the relationship. We're working through it. But, but seriously, she loved it. And knew nothing about it. So yeah, I believe there's a lot of value into going to think fresh. Now, at the same time, I also had a tremendous experience with Lord of the Rings because when Fellowship of the Rings started, it felt like the Shire to me. But that's just because Peter Jackson kind of imagined Middle Earth the same way I imagined it. But, but other than that, I really do think it's better to go into a movie clean instead of reading the book first. That's just my opinion. All right. And that'll do it, guys, for this installment of the companion videos. Thank you to everybody who sent in those questions, number one, because it gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved with the John Campia Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. Okay, don't forget, guys, the John Campia Show returns tomorrow. We hope you guys will join us for that. But in the meantime, guys, make sure to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campia. Until next time, my friends, bye-bye.